Well, if you were uh, with us last week, um, if you were here last week or if you watched or listened to the message, I diverted um, from the plan, which I don't normally do. Um, and uh, last week was Reformation, Reformation Day, actually last Sunday, and um, uh, I was going to preach on Romans chapter 12, um, and um, the Spirit led me, I guess I can say, pretty confidently, the Spirit led me to not do that and to preach instead on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16, 17, and 18. Um, so, the Spirit is leading me today to come back to Romans chapter 12, which was the plan. So, we are going to uh, resume our study of 1 Corinthians, which is our regular habit, go through books of the Bible. We, we are going to resume that, Lord willing, next Sunday. Um, we're going to pick up in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, but for today, um, as sort of a continued celebration of the reformation of the church, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, and this really will kind of be a reformation checkup for us. So let me, let me read this. We're going to spend most of our time, honestly, in the first couple of verses, um, so don't feel like I'm going to have, it's going to take us a long time to get through those two verses, and then we've got a whole bunch more to go. Uh, that's just the way it's going to work out today. Most of our time is going to be in the first couple of verses, but let me read this chapter, Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Re Repay no one evil for evil, but give uh, thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Let's go to the Lord again in prayer and ask him to help us today. Lord, we do pray that you would give us ears to hear. Help us to understand these words that we have just read. And I pray that I would decrease and that Christ would increase in our hearts and our minds as we hear your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we talk about the, the legacy of the Protestant Reformation, um, one of the terms that might come to mind is the Latin phrase, semper reformanda, which simply means always reforming. And, and who doesn't love a good Latin phrase, right? Even the Marines use semper fi, semper fidelis, always faithful. Unfortunately, though, that phrase, semper reformanda, it's kind of become just a catchphrase that's kind of lost all of its meaning. Many would say that the church must keep up with the spirit of the age and reform its views on marriage equality, for example, gender roles within the church, whatever other cause du jour happens to be trendy. Semper reformanda, always reforming, they will say, and then they will use some phrase like open hearts, open minds, open doors. That's not what this means. And while it's true that we should be constantly examining our doctrine and our beliefs and our practice in light of what the Scripture teaches to to see if these things are so as the Bereans This Latin phrase, semper reformanda, it's not about change for the sake of change, let alone reforming the church's confession to keep up with the times. There's an essay titled, Reformed and Always Reforming. It's written by a guy, a theologian named Michael Horton. And he explains the origin of this catchphrase, semper reformanda, like this. He he writes that, The saying first appeared in the year 1674 in a a devotional book by a Dutch pastor named Jokadis van Lodenstein. This was over 150 years after the Protestant Reformation began. Okay, so 1670s. And this author who coined this phrase, van Lodenstein, He wanted to see his church continue to pursue reformation in their lives and in their practices. His concern was was personal piety, holiness, not doctrinal progressivism. This is what Van Lodenstein originally wrote. He said this, he wrote this, Ecclesia reformata semper reformanda secundum verbi dei. I'm sure I butchered the Latin. But roughly translated, it is this. The church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. (laughs) Now it makes a little bit more sense. We need to be always being reformed according to the word of God. We might say, until we are glorified, until we are fully, finally, perfectly conformed to the exact likeness of Christ, the church, we as saints individually, the whole church collectively, must always be reforming. Semper reformanda. Probably the most influential of all of the reformers, except for Martin Luther, John Calvin was under no illusion that the Reformation had reached its goal in his lifetime or or even that it would get there in the next few generations. 
He believed that the church needed to be always reforming. He wrote in his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion, so he opens with a quote from Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27, which says this, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And, and here Calvin says this, Nevertheless, it is true that the Lord is daily smoothing out its wrinkles and wiping away its spots. Hence it follows that its holiness is not yet perfect. Such then is the holiness of the church. It makes daily progress, but is not yet perfect. It daily advances, but as yet has not reached the goal. So, so how shall we reach the goal of Christ-likeness? How shall we reach this goal? Well, we have to go back to the beginning. In the Gospel according to Mark, the very first words that Mark records Jesus saying is this, it's Mark 1.15. First words Jesus says, according to the gospel, first words, not the first words he says, the first words Mark wrote down for us, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This must be our starting point, our Wittenberg, Wittenberg door, so to speak, repentance. In fact, that's actually where the Reformation really started. Thesis number one of the 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We believe that the kingdom of God is already, and yet it is also not yet. That means that we believe that when Jesus came and declared the good news, the kingdom came. In fact, his baptism was, was really akin to God saying, Behold your king. And yet the kingdom has not yet been fully realized. It is not yet. See, while Jesus is the king, he left to prepare the kingdom for us. And we are reminded that, that the kingdom is not yet every day when we look at the headlines. Do we not? When we see the earth groaning in the pains of childbirth. When we see the destruction and death that's caused by some disease or some storm or some earthquake or some fire or whatever. Or when death hits us personally close to home. We wait. We cry out to Christ to come back and to fully establish his eternal kingdom. Until then, we repent and we believe in the gospel. And when we do that, he declares us citizens of the kingdom. And there is no other way into the kingdom of God. There's no other way. There's no other way to be, to, to be declared a child of God. You can't do it yourself. The only way into the kingdom is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if the kingdom is the, um, the universal church, the the, the capital C church, members of the universal church, all Christians everywhere, we are, we are citizens of the kingdom. We are members of his church, and we are strangers in a strange land. And if this is all true, that this world is not our home, 
then the local church, Logansville Church, is an outpost in this strange land. We're like, a, we're like an embassy offering refuge and protection for all of the citizens of the kingdom to come together. We're a group of people who have been brought together by Christ, assembled by Him. And as such, we have certain rights and responsibilities and even obligations as citizens of His kingdom, as members of His church. So I've said this before, although I'm sure it's not original to me. Church membership is, is us saying, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And as a citizen, I have certain responsibilities to my king, to my fellow citizens, and to the outside world. And so this is where we're going today. This is what we're going to be looking at, what our responsibilities are as members of the body of Christ, as members of Logansville Community Church. And so we're going to walk through Romans chapter 12. As I said, we're going to spend most of our time in the first couple of verses. But before we go through this, um, I think it's helpful to remember that, that throughout the Bible, both in the Old and New Testaments, there are several different metaphors for the people of God. So in the Old Testament, God's chosen people were an ethnic group that really was defined as a nation, the Jews, or more precisely, the Israelites, the nation of Israel. This is where the whole, the whole idea of being citizens comes from. In the New Testament, there's actually several different metaphors that are used. The people of God are called a family. They're called a bride. They're called vine and branches, a building, and the body, among other metaphors. And each metaphor is used to show different aspects of the people of God, right? So, for example, the human body does not relate to itself in the same way that a family relates to itself, right? That makes sense, right? For today, we're going to be looking at this idea of the people of God being a body, okay? So that's the metaphor, physical body. But to mix the metaphor just a little bit, because the New Testament does this type of thing all the time, I'm going to start with this statement. We're going to go back to the citizen part. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we, members of the body, have certain responsibilities to the king of the kingdom. We have certain responsibilities to God. So we're going to start there. Our responsibilities to the king. And Chief among those responsibilities to the king is worship. We could say transformational worship. Worship that transforms. Look at these first couple of verses of Romans 12. Actually, let me read verse 36 of chapter 11 and then the first two verses of chapter 12. 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the key um, 
themes throughout the book of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church that is there in Rome. One of the themes is God's, God's judgment and yet his saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is summed up really in, in the first couple of, uh, really chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then beginning in the very next verse, verse 18 Paul lays out the amazingness of Christ's work of, of justifying sinners and making us righteous. And he continues this really all the way through chapter 11, laying out the amazingness, the marvelousness of Christ conforming us to his image, justifying us, making us righteous. And Paul lays out this, it's really kind of a systematic theology. And we can see God's righteous wrath towards sinners. We can see his saving righteousness and hope that is found in this righteousness by faith. Throughout those first 11 chapters, Paul lays out the fact that both Jews and Gentiles are recipients of God's righteousness. And then he concludes chapter 11, that last verse, it really is sort of a, it's almost, it's a, it's a doxology. It's almost, he, he just sort of like launches into praise as he's concluding that chapter. And then that, that transitions us into chapter 12, where Paul begins to make the case for God's righteousness to be seen in our everyday lives. So the first 11 chapters of Romans are the, are the indicatives. They're indicating what God has done. And beginning in chapter 12, we see then the, the imperatives, what we must do in response. Therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And then he begins with some commands. Because of what Christ has done, now do this. Because being servants of a God who loves us like that. So for example, a statement that he makes in the midst of um, those first 11 chapters. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Servants of a God who loves us like that means that the whole of life is to be lived in service to God. This is the first thing that Paul calls us to do here is, is to be a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, in light of everything that I've been writing about, in light of all that God has done for you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul, Paul here is applying Old Testament sacrificial language to these Roman Christians. And, and really, by extension, he's applying this to us. But, and, and, and I think that we understand this at least in theory, he's not simply talking about our physical bodies, although they're included. He's calling us to give, to give ourselves over completely to God. The sacrifices that the Jews were familiar with were animal sacrifices. That's what he's referring to. 
But he's saying, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Give yourselves over completely to God, physically. Or maybe we could say materially. Our physical bodies and our stuff all belong to God. Mentally, the way that we think or what we think about belongs to God. Spiritually, our worship and our devotion belongs to God. A genuine commitment to God embraces every aspect and every area of life. It's not just physical. It's not just outward. We're not just going through the motions. It's a complete devotion. Notice the connection between the Old Testament Jewish way of life and the new Roman Christian, their lives. No longer does God require that animal sacrifice. Jesus became that final eternal sacrifice. And because of him, we are now living sacrifices, given over completely to God. And the idea here is willingly, eagerly, and without reservation. When, when we grasp, when we understand just how much God the Father and, and God the Son has done for us, we can do nothing else but give ourselves over completely to Him. This is the idea behind that phrase, spiritual worship. Some of the older translations might say, reasonable service. The idea is the same. This is the only logical conclusion that we can come to, and it is an act of serving worship. Bow our knees before God the Father and Christ the Son, the power of the Holy Spirit, and worship. Look at this next verse where we are called to be transformed. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now think about this for a minute. To conform, do not be conformed to this world. To conform, it means to masquerade or to act. But conformity is not only a masquerade or, or to pretend or act, but it's, it also has an unthinking element to it. It's a just going along with the crowd. So, have you ever been to a Hot Topic at the mall? I'm not recommending you go in a Hot Topic at the mall. I haven't been to the mall in a long, long time. I don't even know if it's still in business, but you know what I'm talking about, that, that one store. There's a couple of stores you just kind of look the other way when you walk by. Hot Topic is one of them. Um, back when I was a youth pastor down in Xenia, goth, in the kind of the mid-aughts, goth was in. Um, I have no idea if it still is or not. It's not out here in Logan County. <clears throat> but I used to make fun of the kids who were goth kids that would come to our youth group because they all looked the same. Same could be said really for hippies or punks or whatever kind of subcategory of um, individualism you want to point out. In an effort to stand apart from the crowd, they ended up all looking the same. Worldly, worldly nonconformity almost always just, just looks just like all the other nonconformists, right? But Christianity is meant to be different than that. Christianity is meant to be different. Leon Morris writes a commentary on the book of Romans, and he says this, 
Christians have been introduced into the life of the world to come. What a tragedy then if they conform to the perishing world they left. The world is demanding, even more so as the days draw as the day draws near. The world is demanding our conformity. Yet yet the conforming it requires can only be called antichrist. The world is demanding that we conform. And that conformity is antichrist. Yet the opposite of conforming to the world that Paul tells us here is to be transformed. And this has a thinking element. It is an action. It is something that we have to work on, that we have to strive after. Paul tells the Romans to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's not a phrase that's found outside of Christian literature. Um, It's essentially saying, let the Holy Spirit change the way you think. It's just like the idea of of God removing your heart of stone and giving us a, a heart of flesh. The old, petrified, dead, broken way of thinking has to be completely removed and replaced with the mind of God, the mind of Christ. We are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And notice that, let me read verse 2 again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's in the present tense. It's written as an ongoing action. We are to be continually transforming. It's not simply about thinking. This isn't simply a a sort of an intellectual exercise. We're also to be transformed morally in our actions. But it's not just about changing the way that we think and completely changing our morals or changing our actions. It is a complete change, a total transformation in our orientation of worship. We were all created to worship. We all worship something, usually ourselves. The human heart is an idle factory, Calvin said. While the world doesn't necessarily call it worship, our society worships science, worships sexual expression, worships radical individualism, Our society worships athleticism, educational advancement, politics. I could probably keep going, right? Our society worships all kinds of things, but a believer does not think like an unbeliever thinks. Paul's not talking about, he's not talking about kind of a, a mindless, mindless emotionalism. He's not talking about the the sort of sappy religiosity we sometimes see. He's talking about a deeply intelligent approach to the Christian life. And and it's not not just simply that as Christians we should be driven by by a simple creed, something like, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Rather, he is calling us for a a deep intellectual thinking that is driven and controlled by the Holy Spirit and is informed by and in submission to the the Word of God. Christians must be Spirit-filled and Word of God-saturated people. Read your Bibles. 
Read them often. Read your Bibles. I'll say it one more time. Read your Bibles. We must be spirit-filled and word of God-saturated people. Otherwise, when the spirit of the age says that assembling with a local congregation really isn't that important, I mean, you can do it online. Or that marriage is disposable. When the spirit of the age says that pets are more important than children, we get sucked right into those things and we, can, we completely conform to the image of the world. But Christians, because of the gospel, are commanded, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And as a result, Paul says, you will be able to discern the will of God. The will of God. Listen to verse 2 again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, this doesn't mean as much you will be able to test as it means you will test. Paul is really saying not only that the Romans would, would find out that God's will is good, but that once they found it out, they would put it into practice. He's arguing for the spiritual discernment that helps us to understand what God wants us to do and then, and then sets ourselves to do it. But do, you know what, do you know what Paul is really saying here? He's saying that the, the downward spiral of sin that he describes in chapter 1, for example, that downward spiral of sin is reversed for those who have been redeemed from sin. I want you to see this. Turn, turn your Bibles back to Romans chapter 1. Find verse 18. Romans chapter 1. Find verse 18. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And let your eyes just kind of skim down through to the end of the chapter. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. But for the redeemed... For those of us who are believers, who are Christians, who have trusted in Christ for salvation, those things, those reasons that God gave them up, you can see them there. There's a whole list of heinous sins. But for us, those things have been reversed and we will be able to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. The opposite of all of those things. The renewal of the mind enables us as believers to discern what is good and what is pleasing to God, what is perfect, and having discerned it, that same renewal sets us to the task of doing the will of God. What is the will of God? It's that we would be worshipers of Him, 
Worshippers who are being transformed into Christ-likeness. And it is our duty, it is our responsibility as citizens of his kingdom because he has redeemed us. I think this is where sometimes Christians stop. They stop here, and this is what I mean. Um, They'll show up on a Sunday, sing a few songs, listen to somebody pray, listen to a sermon, maybe even give a little bit of money, and then call it worship. Is that worship? Is that what our Creator wants? Is that what our King is due? A little bit of outward action? If we are citizens of the kingdom, not only do we have responsibilities toward the King, but we have responsibilities to one another as well, to the other citizens of the kingdom. And so, beginning in verse 3, and really all the way down through verse 16, Paul addresses what we could call the marks of a Christian church. These are our responsibilities to our fellow citizens. And helpfully, Paul, Paul really lays out three responsibilities in this section. We are to humbly serve, to faithfully cooperate, and to lovingly participate in the kingdom. And none of these can be done unless we're a part of the local church. So let me go through, this is going to be pretty fast, so let me just go through this. We are to humbly serve or serve with humility. Um, and I need to point out that this passage is not just for church leaders. All Christians must be ministering, and all ministry is a function of the membership in the body. All members of the body serve a purpose. The Scriptures clearly teach us that. But look at verse 3, so Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In the opening of this passage, uh, it really back in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Uh, Paul is a, a brethren, is probably a better English translation, brothers and sisters. He's appealing to them as, as fellow Christians. But now he changes his tone in verse 3, and he's instructing them based on his authority as an apostle. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, and that term grace there refers to his his Christ-given gift of apostleship. Paul is leaning here in verse 3 on his God-given authority. And this leads to a series of, the big word again is imperatives, commands, that spell out the implications of what Paul has just said. In other words, what Paul is about to say flows directly from our act of transforming worship, and it's not voluntary, meaning these are not merely suggestions. If you'd like to, do these things. These are commands. Paul is an apostle, and he has the authority to command, and it shouldn't be uh, like we're being told something we don't want to do. We are being commanded to do something we want to do because of what has been done for us. It's a loving obedience. Look at his words. Thinking more highly than we ought about ourselves. That's a natural human tendency, is it not? We are a prideful people. So Paul calls us instead to exercise sober judgment. 
We need to take a sane, realistic view of ourselves. God has given us faith, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, he says. He has given us this faith, and we need to take it seriously. If God is the giver of good gifts, and we are totally dependent upon him for them all, then it would be be pretty foolish for us to be prideful and arrogant. See how holy I am. This idea of having sober judgment um, or being sober-minded, it means recognizing that God is recognizing what God has given us and being zealous to use those things, as well as humble because of its origin. Our faith is from God. If we look at the next verse, this section is what we might call faithful cooperation. Let me read verses 4 to 8 again. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are, in, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching... The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. To call the church a body is to say that its members are mutually dependent upon one another and yet have different roles. We can see that clearly in verse 5. And the interrelatedness and codependence of Christians is important. Notice that Paul does not say members of one body, but he says members of one another. And so when you, when you join a church, let's, let's break down the metaphor for a second. When you join a church, it's not the building that you join. We, we all kind of understand this, right? We're not like the Y. We're not like Anytime Fitness. We're joining to one another. Our building, this meeting house, is just a bonus. (laughs) We're joining to one another, and we are joined to God. We are citizens together, co-citizens of His kingdom. And so we must remember that members has no meaning apart from the body. You cannot be a member of nothing, right? Have you ever met somebody who claims to be a member of a church, yet never attends? It doesn't work like that. You have to be there and be a part of the body. Paul goes on to say that each of these Christians has a gift and therefore a responsibility toward one another. This begins with humility and we have been called to use them. Now, we're not going to spend too much time here on spiritual gifts where time is marching on anyway. We're going to get at the idea of spiritual gifts a little bit later in our study of 1 Corinthians, but let me just quickly go through this list, really quick. Prophecy. This is foretelling or forthtelling. In other words, it is somebody saying, thus saith the Lord. We usually equate this, at least sometimes, with preaching today. Service. This is ministry, or, or literally it means deaconing, teaching. This is explaining God's word, which is a little bit different, and I think you understand this, from the authoritative declaration of it, like preaching. Exhortation is is encouragement. It is proclaiming a message that stirs the heart and the affections. Giving is to be done with overflowing generosity. 
leading, or some of the older versions might say rule here. It simply means leadership of the body and showing mercy, which is to be done cheerfully. This is a, this is a special ministry to the suffering, showing mercy. And then in verse 9, so that was really fast, but then in verse 9, Paul makes an abrupt change, and he brings us right back to the duties of the body as a whole. We could call it loving participation in kingdom life. Yet it isn't always so, quite so cut and dry. Some of what Paul writes could easily be focused on those inside the church, other members, um, but they also could be focused on those outside of the church. So the lines aren't quite so hard and fast. Let, let me quickly read through this. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but, be, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul starts there in verse 9 with some kind of internal, personal duties, and he moves quickly through this list of attitudes that affect our actions. Notice that he uses the term love a few times in there. Love is to be genuine, it is to be humble, and it is to be focused on others. Love is the underlying theme through here. And it makes perfect sense because the, the context of this is still body life in the will of God. What is the church supposed to look like? We're supposed to love one another. A humble attitude and a willingness to share are the marks of a Christian who truly ministers to the body of Christ and fulfills our responsibilities to other citizens of the kingdom. And while we are responsible to other citizens, and we are responsible to our king, our responsibility does not end there, because we also have responsibilities to the outside world, and Paul tells us here that we must have in this Christ-like behavior. So to the outside world, let's finish this up, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give a thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus is warning his followers, um, or he has warned his followers, that the Christian who seeks to obey God and let himself be transformed, is going to have enemies. A Christian who seeks to obey God and let himself be transformed into Christ-likeness is going to have enemies. And Paul here is laying out the fact that our actions toward those who hate us will be affected by our inward attitudes. Most of this passage is straightforward. That's why I wanted to go through it so quickly. But I want to point out one thing that I think summarizes the point. Paul is not saying, try to do what everyone considers to be good. He's not calling on Christians to be just simply good people. 
nice people, to be moral people. He's calling them to live out the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Christians, our responsibility toward those outside of the kingdom, those who are unbelievers, is to live in such a way that even outsiders, even unbelievers, will recognize that we are citizens of a different kingdom. We should live in such a way as to commend the essential Christian message, the gospel. Live in such a way that we actually believe it. That Christ died for sinners. See, our body life, the way that we as a church interact with one another, the way that we interact with the world, the way that we are transformed into worshipers of God, it should enable the church to look at the people of God, even Logansville Community Church, and see an authentic look at His holiness and His majesty. We sh- they should see a glimpse into the kingdom to come, not just simply a, a group of people who are going to do something different and each one of us has a different agenda, but a body that is being transformed together into worshipers of the one true true God. To look at the members of this church should be a a glimpse into the kingdom, and it should look like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Pray with me. Lord, we long for that day. It is our prayer that when we gather here every Lord's Day that that it would be a glimpse of an eternity. A glimpse because we are being transformed into Christ-likeness. Because all sin is being killed, is being repented of and put away. And instead we are being transformed into worshipers who rejoice, who encourage one another, who pray for one another, who love one another, who serve one another, who show mercy to one another, who proclaim to one another, look up, look at Christ. Father, we come to the table this morning, not trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercies. Lord, we are not We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs from your table. But you are merciful and gracious. 
So Lord, as we celebrate your mercy and your grace in this breaking of bread and drinking of the cup that we have seen in the death of your son, may we feed on him in our hearts by faith that we may be so united to him and he to us who with you and with the Holy Spirit is worthy of our praise, is worthy of our thanksgiving. Lord, may we do this in worship as we are being transformed into Christ-likeness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.